online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Welcome to Flavor Talks with Bella Zoo. I'm Robert Kirbishley. Bella Zoo's new podcast, Flavor Talks, is all about extraordinary and uncompromised flavor. We'll be chatting to our long-standing suppliers, creative chef customers, inspiring influencers, and some of the UK's leading food experts to share adventures and stories behind our favorite ingredients, giving you an insight into our world of food. Today, we've had the pleasure of bringing Stephanie Slater, founder and chief executive of School Food Matters, and Rachel Edwards-Stewart, renowned food scientist and flavor expert, together for a fascinating episode all around food education, the science of flavor, the merits of free school meals, and just how many times should we try something before we actually like it? Hello, and welcome to another edition of Velazoo Flavor Talks. And today we're going to be talking to uh, Stephanie Slater from School Food Matters and Rachel Edward Stewart, who is a food scientist and flavor expert. Hello there, how are you? Hello. 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 So uh, we want to talk. Uh, we, we want to talk about as much as possible, really. But I, I think the two, the the one strand is is really food education, and I think um, it's probably fair to say you're coming from two um, different perspectives on that. Would you be surprised? kind as to introduce yourselves please this is this is one of the things that we do do rather than me doing it, it it's it's nice if if you could just let people know who you are and and uh, and what it is that you do so i'm stephanie slater and i'm founder and chief executive at school food matters i guess in a nutshell we're if you like a food education charity but we use our projects and programs and everything we learn in schools working with children teachers and families to influence our advocacy because obviously like every single charity in the land we want to change the world we want to fix the problem and we want to put ourselves out of business so everything we learn on our projects we take to government to try and influence school food policy and education policy around food we've been around for 15 years i can't believe it wow. it's our 15th birthday this year and it came together because I was one of those pushy parents at a primary school. My children were at the local primary school yeah. and they were being served the most appalling food. And it didn't make sense to me because I come from a family that grew food, cooked food. It's always been a sort of simple, but real, really pleasurable experience eating together. And it didn't make sense to me that in a school environment, that wasn't the case. And it wasn't just me that thought so. Only 26% of children were eating the school dinners. And at the same time, I heard a head teacher say that children at his primary school couldn't identify an onion. <laughs> I mean, not an aubergine, an onion. So I thought, gosh, there's such a disconnect between what children are eating and where their food comes from. I just thought we could do better. So that's how it began. 15 years later, we were running a whole series of food education programs. One of them is called Fresh Enterprise, and we do that with Bellazoo. It, it is indeed, Fred, of <laughs> which I, I do have the pleasure of taking a very tiny part in. We're going to, I want to come back to Fresh Enterprise. I want to come back to School Food Matters. But Rachel, would you, would you just, um, would you just, introduce, well, talk about what, what, what a food scientist and flavour expert is, please. Yeah, so hello, everybody. Just in terms of probably a bit of background about me, because I've ended up in this kind of slightly unique field as a food and flavour scientist. And that's largely due to kind of what happened over the past like kind of 20 years, whereby, you know, I like a lot of people at school, science was my favourite subject. I'd literally get so excited over double chemistry. I mean, it was just all about the science for me. But my other massive love was food and they never taught kind of food science or home ec or anything at school. Um, and I was heavily encouraged to go to Cambridge where they also do not offer any kind of food science. 
or anything linked to that. So I ended up doing, you know, biochemistry, a pretty kind of hardcore science subject, but always felt that actually what my true love was, was actually this kind of mixing of, of my love of science and my passion for food, but not in a kind of conventional food science way. My real passion was in kind of culinary science. So almost like how the understanding of science can help the way you cook rather than necessarily the processing of ingredients. So as in, when individuals are in the kitchen cooking, how can understanding science um, make a difference? How can they apply that understanding to what they're actually doing when they cook? Um, and so I was lucky enough to get a position working with Dr. Hervé Tisse in Paris, who was one of the big pioneers of this movement that is now gets a lot of kind of bad press, but molecular gastronomy, which when it was first kind of created, was all about chefs and scientists working together to kind of help each other um, and kind of to bring these two groups of people that, you know, were very kind of, you know, separate groups in the past, to kind of bring them together to share um, kind of knowledge and, um, and to kind of work together. And so I spent a year in his lab studying the science of potato salad. <laughs> which was uh, very interesting. And I then, through, through him, was lucky to be introduced to Hessen Blumenthal, who then a year later announced that he was sponsoring a PhD and I got the position. So I then spent three years at Nottingham University doing a PhD in flavour science that was sponsored by the Fat Duck restaurant. Um, and obviously, you know, PhDs notoriously can be quite kind of, um, you know, quite kind of conventional. I wouldn't say boring, they're really interesting, but they're quite kind of looking at kind of within food science, like food manufacturing processing. Whereas obviously all the stuff I was working on was all these crazy ideas that Hessner had that he wanted us to kind of input into his restaurant. So it was quite different in terms of um, the standard PhD. But Heston was really interested at the time in, in flavour science and, you know, really understand the science of how we perceive different flavours and mm -hmm. the role that all our five senses play in this very complex process of the perception of flavour. So I got really involved in the kind of idea of the science of, of flavour perception as part of my PhD. And then when I finished that, I then realised I had quite a strange view of the world because what I'd done was kind of so <laughs> unique. I then realised I probably needed a bit more real life experience. So I then got a job at Sainsbury's, which is kind of probably as real life as it gets. And interesting, the reason I decided to work for Sainsbury's is because I love shopping in supermarkets. I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with it. And I used to have to move my car after two hours free parking because I was still in the middle of doing my shopping. And I think at that point I realised that probably, you know, maybe this kind of obsession I had with shopping, food shopping, maybe if I actually work, you know, maybe I could kind of get a job in that area. So I got, um, I joined Sainsbury's and funny enough, you had to do six months, well at the time, six months work in store. So I did a good stint of kind of stacking shelves and working behind the meat counter and working the tills um, at Walthamstow Sainsbury's um, but I then went in to do the product development and technology and I specialised in the free-form range of foods so all of the gluten-free, wheat-free, dairy-free which was really well suited for me because it's quite technical, quite scientific in terms of the development side of things because you really need to understand how the raw materials work and so I then spent kind of four years or so there so got developed a really good understanding of kind of food development um, through that and then at that point decided that actually what I really wanted to do was go back to this kind of previous time that I spent really working with chefs and scientists. And so that was when I got into the training aspect. So I now teach uh, food and flavour science to chefs, um, but also to mixologists and also just run um, workshops on flavour science, also just for kind of corporate and individual um, events. But basically, I'm just passionate about this whole idea and subject of flavor science and i just love educating people about it because i think it's such a interesting area 
well, it is. So that was very um, brief, but that's that. That, <laughs> that, answers, that answers your question, hopefully. Oh, brevity's overrated. Don't worry about it. It's it's fine. Stephanie, your your background wasn't food related. You you were a you were you a TV producer or was that yeah. was that correct? Yeah, yeah, film and television producer for twenty years. Can you believe it? So that was. And I think, Bob, that was partly why I just threw myself into the campaign at my kids' local authority, because I had absolutely no idea how complicated public sector procurement was. Had I known anything about it, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> so I just I just treated it like a film production. I went in there and I thought, bish, bash, bosh, I'll get this sorted out in about six months and we can all be eating delicious food. <laughs> it just seemed, you know, such common sense. I mean, who's going to argue with feeding children delicious food? I mean... And bizarrely, I mean, I don't want to underestimate the complexity of this, but it can be that simple to fix because often the problem is that nobody's asked the question. Local authorities are very busy places. Head teachers are incredibly busy people. And if they're given something, they just go, gosh, well, perhaps that's the way it is. And nobody had actually asked the question why 38 primary schools in a, you know, the green and lovely land of London Borough of Richmond upon Thames, why on earth were they serving a frozen ready meal made in a factory in Wales and bussing it out to schools in London? It made no sense. And all the all the cooks that I met wanted a cook and they weren't being given the opportunity. They were just sort of opening packets and putting things in microwaves and reheating stuff. And it just didn't make sense. So I just asked that really sort of thorny question as in why are we doing it like this um, and everybody sort of scratched their heads and went well because we've always done it like that and they'd been told they'd sort of the, the local authority who were great to work with in the end they'd sort of been sold this myth that they needed what was called a kitchenless solution which meant <laughs> you know stick it in a microwave or stick it in a regen oven and so I you know again it's solutions-based thinking as all film production people that's the way we think because we're not allowed to say no ever. I just went, well, has anyone had a little look in the kitchen to see what's needed to get everybody cooking from scratch? And again, you know, everyone looked baffled. And um, cut a long story short, it, own, it costs 80,000 quid across 38 schools in kit to get everyone cooking. 80,000? Yeah, which I thought was completely remarkable. I mean, it's absolute peanuts when you think about the number of children you're feeding. Um, it's crazy. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, I, I so I've got, a, I've got a question written down here, which I was going to probably ask towards the end. But I mean, it, it's, it's basically, what is it, do you think, that still stops governments from wading in and, and sorting out school food for once and for all? Because, I mean, it, does, it doesn't make any sense. Because it seems to me, because we spoke to chefs in schools fairly recently. I think, I don't know if you guys, if, I don't know if you work together or, yeah, or you Naomi and I are desk buddies sometimes as well <laughs> I mean you know we, we had a very similar conversation there that, that there are clearly people who want to cook in schools and very highly skilled people who want to pass on that knowledge as well children love being involved in in sort of making it they love having having decent food Ab above and beyond that it uh, the the the, uh, the benefit that they get from it on so many levels is is almost sort of incalculable. So what what is it that that stops a government coming in and just saying right enough of this nonsense? Let's put school food matters chefs in schools out of business and let's sort this. <laughs> well, there is a couple of things. I mean, it, it, as I say, it's not too complicated. But the two biggest problems I think are. I guess I, I don't want to be hard on on head teachers, but I have to say that where it's working beautifully 
it's got a head teacher who's taken it on because everything is there. You know, there is money flowing into the system. If a head teacher decides they want to prioritize this and goodness knows they've got a lot to think about, haven't they? But if you've got a head teacher that sees the value of good food and a good food culture in a school, they just make it work. I mean, the, the, the really exciting thing that happened in 2014 was universal infant free school meals. Every infant in every school was eating a free school meal together. And with that came great investment into the school food service. So I personally, I mean, a lot of contract caterers would argue with me, but I actually think there is enough money flowing into the system. It just doesn't always end up in good nutrition on the children's plate. And part of that is leadership within the school. And part of that is lack of monitoring. We have these fabulous things called school food standards, but no one's looking. Right, so nobody, so we've got the standard, but nobody's checking the standard. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're trying to do, and we've had a little bit of success very recently with um, the levelling up white paper, is we managed to sneak in a little bit there about schools needing to report on their spend, on how they're delivering school food. And if they have to report, then it does, you know, creep up the priority list. You know, governors will be saying, gosh, we've got to report on this. What are we going to say? So, you know, it's just about asking questions, isn't it? Um, if somebody asks a question, you have to root around to try and find the answer. So um, I think that's going to make a big difference. Right. OK. So, I mean, but do you how much uh, of an impact does the the food culture or lack of it in, in the country um have on 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 those people who make the decisions on the head teachers and and the governors you know like my daughter's 12 she's uh, at a school where and i saw this on your website where um she occasionally does a cookery lesson but it's classed as design technology yeah absolutely which... well it's that's where it sits which is a bit weird well i mean rachel might not think so but it it's sort of <laughs> it, it feels a bit weird having it in design and technology but to me, it's all about the joy, the pleasure, the skills of keeping yourself healthy. But, you know, I'm sort of slightly maverick in my approach. I want a lesson called food education, like physical education, like religious education. You know, it's a big enough yeah. subject to go all the way from reception, tasting, discovering new foods up to A-level. You know, there's enough in it. We've got so many political issues around food. It would be a whole curriculum as far as I'm concerned. However, what we do have now is mandatory cooking in schools. That happened out of the school food plan. We got that, but the problem is that lots of schools aren't doing it. So your daughter in her secondary school, she might get six weeks in a DT cycle, but the actual yeah. curriculum we came up with is really interesting, but it just doesn't get the focus that it deserves. And Henry Dimbleby is obviously trying to address some of this in the national food strategy. So let's see what comes out when the white paper comes out. There's a bit of difference between sort of learning how to do the basics and then obviously, Rachel, you spending 10 months studying uh, the science of a potato salad. But I mean, do, do you think uh, that the, do you think that the, that they're, what we're talking about is, is compatible? I mean, do you, just out of interest, do you think it's okay that it sits in a sort of design technology or do you, do you think it should have a curriculum of its own? Well, no, I mean, I completely agree with Stephanie because, you know, food education is so important. You know, what we're trying to get our kids when they go to school, they're supposed to be learning, you know, life skills. They're supposed to be learning how to do the best in life, how to, you know, how to survive, how to kind of do the best that they can. And not only knowing how to cook, but knowing how to make the right decisions about what they're eating is so important. If you don't, you know, for, 
you know, for me, because I'm so immersed in this world, I make, you know, for me, it all seems so obvious, these kind of things about health eating, about food groups, about balanced diet, about addressing kind of hunger cues, about, you know, understanding foods that kind of make you feel full, just those those kind of, I'm going to say basics, they're probably kind of, I guess not what most people would consider basics, but I think if people, you know, if, if, if everyone was taught about that and for me I just find you know like Stephanie incredible that it's not seen as important as kind of English and maths Mm. because you know it's I mean it 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 seems almost more important than yeah you know than than those other skills that are given kind of such important weighting and so I just you know I've I think it's crazy I mean luckily I can do a lot of it with my kids at home because you know because I know it and and also they get excited by it I mean that's the thing food is such an exciting way to engage people and to communicate with people and it's just you know it 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 it's it, it is crazy that it's not taken so as seriously as it should be in schools you know plus the fact that the the you know the importance in terms of you know the impacts the health implications of obesity um of you know diabetes all of these issues when you're not actually eating healthily and and properly and i mean physical education is in pretty much every school why is food education not as well it's the you know you need both of them yeah. to happen in order to kind of be healthy and, and and fit, really. So, you know, I completely agree with Stephanie. I mean, maybe they don't need a 10-month course in potato salad. I mean, I admit that that's <laughs> a little bit extreme. But, you know, definitely they should be covering the basics. Obviously, we're all feeling sort of quite overwhelmed by everything in the news at the moment. But if you just think about a, a sixth-form student having the opportunity to look at the geopolitics of food, and if you look at the lens through what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and the impact of the supply chain and wheat, and, you know, we start having a fantastic global exploration of the food system I mean that's you know when they I I was a governor at my children's secondary school and the head teacher was really progressive and really hot on this stuff but even I heard her say oh we offer GCSE food to the kids that can't do a language and I thought to myself that just made me so sad it was like oh well Mm. they can't quite manage French or Spanish so we'll give them cooking I mean what the hell's all that about and they've also taken away the food A level so there's no pathway from GCSE so we're hoping to get that back. But it's just about giving it the weight it deserves. And I really liked what Henry Dimbleby said in the National Food Strategy about giving it the same focus as maths and English. Because, you know, we've got a, we've got a nation which is absolutely under the cosh of health inequality. We have a climate catastrophe. I mean, why are we not doing this? I really can't fathom it. No, it, it doesn't make any... It, um, that's really weird that they say... I mean, it reminds me of my dad. Uh, my, my dad uh, grew up in, in Cheshire. And uh, because he wasn't particularly gifted in, in, the, in the classroom, I mean, we're talking in the 1940s, and uh, they used to regularly say to him, Gerbishly, you just go out and deal with the animals, because they had animals, and because uh, they, they'd written him off. He was never going to do English, he was never going to do maths, so out he went and did gardening and, and looking after the school farm, which, which is just bizarre. But it's very surprising to hear that that, that sort of similar attitude still survives today. But one, one thing I was going to say was just that... Alice and I were chatting, and, and it, it seemed to me that um, there's almost sort of two types of education going on here. If you could, you know, if you could get the school meals sorted out, then that becomes subliminal because then if, if they're good, there's a standard that children 
um, have to, to uh, have set for them so they can then recognise what is good and what is bad and what is flavourful and what is flavourless food. And then you've got the more direct education of how you actually cook, how to chop and, and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, you, you, I mean you're, you're right. I mean, the ch children just, they, they love food. I mean, they love being given the opportunity to work with food. Do they think of working with food before they do Fresh Enterprise? Or is... Um, and are they surprised by the amount of, of work behind, behind the label, as it were? No, I think it's a real eye-opener. That's why I love this programme so much, because it opens <clears throat> that world of food production up. So, as you say, you know, the kids at the, my children's secondary school were sent to do cooking if they couldn't manage a, a language. It's almost like a negative connotation. So we're opening up the world of food to say, look, hey, there are... I think, but I, have I got this right, Bob? There are 60 different jobs in Bellazoo and we just open them up to all the possibilities from forklift driver to marketing director to development chef to, you know, HR. There are, within a food business, there's a whole range of opportunities. So we, want, we, we really want to encourage young people to think about food as a pathway to any number of different opportunities. And that's even without selling them on the, you know, the joy of food and um, learning yeah. about fabulous new tastes. Would you mind just uh, explaining what Fresh Enterprise is? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this all came to pass because I met some folk from Bellazoo at a, at, a, at a do at City Hall many, many years ago. And there was a sort of shared frustration that there was a lack of people coming into food. I mean, there was a real skills gap and a, and a sort of problem with recruitment. And, you know, I was sort of banging on how I wanted food education in every school. And it just came together so nicely where we created a programme it's specifically for secondary schools. I should say that because they often um, get left out of these um, programmes. School Fit Matters has an equal balance between primary and secondary school um, programmes. And we basically wanted to... I don't, I don't want to say Dragon's Den because I think it's better than Dragon's Den. <laughs> it's, all about, it's all about taking, showing young people the complexity, the excitement, the adventure of creating a new product and taking it to market. So these young people have the opportunity to, first of all, visit Bella Zoo and have a good look around the production facility. So they get to wear the hairnet and the wellies and the, and the um, overalls, and they get to have a look behind the scenes at Bella Zoo to see how the pastes are made. They then set the challenge of creating their own paste or sauce, and they work with our food teacher, who goes into the school and gets them to taste and smell and investigate different flavours and tastes. They create their own product and then they have to learn how to market it. So we do a marketing workshop too. So we get them to start thinking about how they're going to describe what they've produced. Think about marketing, what, think about label design, all of those things and all of those descriptive words about what you're offering to the market. And then comes the Dragon Den moment, which is when they, these young people come along to Bellazoo. We pile into the uh, development kitchen and these, the young people pitch their products, basically, to the tasting panel, which Bob is a member of. Then we put them through the whole rigour of pitching a new product. And the one, the paste that wins the attention of the judging panel 
gets put into production. How cool is that? Yeah, it, it is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I think I've actually lost my place on the tasting panel. I'm, I don't know what's gone on there. So I'll, I'll, you'll have to have a word on my behalf. Um, but um, I mean, what, so one of the things, I mean, the little section that I do, because uh, we, obviously we, we bring in, uh, we do little talks, as you've said, uh, people come in and do talks about what they do in the business. And one of the things that I do is just uh, give the children a tasting. So I, so one of the things I, I took me a little while to kind of, uh, stumble upon was that I like to get them to, to sort of reverse engineer to understand how the flavors work uh, together and, and you know some kids are better than others and that that's but that's the same story for all of us frankly but uh, Rachel did what um, what is <laughs> what is flavor <laughs> so it's um well, it's actually quite a complex um, concept when you actually kind of look into the definition of it I mean I won't kind of bore you with the actual scientific kind of ISO definition, but the idea is, is basically the combination of taste and aroma plus kind of trigeminal um, stimulation as well. But the, ma the main aspects of the flavour, kind of the taste and the aroma that you pick up during the consumption of food, but all the messages that you pick up about the taste and aroma are combined with information that you process about the appearance of it, the texture of it, and even the sound that it makes. Um, so, you know, when, when we're kind of just innocently eating or drinking something, our brain is actually processing a lot of information that ultimately brings together an impression of the overall flavour of, of that product. And I think that it's what, what's, what's kind of amazing is that the research that's gone on, the advances in kind of flavour science research over the last 10 years or so have been amazing. And I mean, we understand so much more now than we ever did before about exactly what's going on in terms of activation areas within the brain that are specifically getting kind of lit up um, due to certain aspects of, of, of flavour. Um, but I think, you know, so few people actually, you know, know about flavour and understand flavour. And I mean, the one thing that just I find so frustrating is even the word taste is constantly misused. Because when we talk about the taste of something, all we're talking about is all of those compounds are being picked up by taste receptors on our tongue. So that's anything that's mm -hmm. sweet, salty, bitter, acidic, or that activates the umami. Um, receptors and, and that's that's it it's it's nothing um to do with aromas to do with smells but we all use the word taste often i wouldn't say all of us but a lot of us use the word taste when what we mean is flavor um so you know i've kind of lost the battle of like when people say oh that tastes great i'm like do you mean that or do you mean that it's got a great flavor because if you mean it tastes great you're only talking about the five basic tastes um but i mean i'm not going to kind of you know People are just so used to using the terminology like that. But aroma actually accounts for, you know, with the kind of general um, understanding is that aroma accounts for 80% of all flavour, of which taste is only 20%. But the 20% the taste adds is fundamental. It's so important. I mean, some of the research they've done to highlight how important taste is within flavour and also aroma is just, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I have to tell you about the chewing, exam chewing gum example. This is just, I think, one of the most fascinating bits of research that was done in the kind of food flavor world it was actually carried out by some of my colleagues at nottingham university but it was some research that was commissioned by i think one of the big chewing gum manufacturers who wanted to understand what they could do in order to increase the kind of lasting of mintiness within their chewing gums because obviously you know 
the idea is you start chewing it. And this is especially true kind of, you know, 10 years or so when it was just made with sugar. Um, but after a while, after you chewed it, the mintiness completely disappears. And so they wanted to know whether they could do something really fancy like micro-encapsulate the, the menthol flavour so that it was kind of being released over a longer time period. Um, and so they did some research on it at, um, at the university and they used this really, really impressive bit of kit that it's, it's a mass spectrometer, which is a machine that's capable of identifying aromas. Um, but it was attached to a nose piece that mm. someone stuck in their nose. And as they were consuming the chewing gum, it would actually pick up aromas that were being released in real time. Um, it's, it's, it's been really useful for kind of understanding what goes on in real time flavor perception. And so what they found is during the process of chewing the gum, the menthol, which is the aroma responsible for the mintiness of chewing gum, over five minute period is constantly released. It doesn't, it doesn't suddenly drop. So even though the consumer is perceiving the mintiness of the chewing gum to disappear, the level of menthone is staying pretty much constant. But what's happening is that you are, the sugar in the chewing gum is dissolving and disappearing. And when you don't have the sugar there, your brain can't get its head around mintiness. Because if you think about all minty products, you know, like toothpaste, mouthwash, they're all sweet. So if you don't have any sugar there, even though the menthone's there, your brain just can't quite put it together to interpret that as mintiness. So all you need to do in that situation when the chewing gums run out of mintiness, if you take it out and dab it in a bit of sugar and put it back in your mouth, the mintiness instantly comes back. And obviously that's not really socially acceptable. But I mean, generally, <laughs> in terms of understanding the science of the importance of, of sugar driving overall flavour, you know, we never realised it was kind of that, that important until kind of those, those studies you know, were carried out. And I think we all know the importance of taste in terms of flavor enhancers, you know, like if you add more sugar, if you add more salt to food, it's going to have so much more flavor, umami, you know, MSG, your classic flavor enhancer. But, you know, I think it's therefore understanding the complex interactions between taste and aroma and how they work together to deliver flavor is just, is so interesting. Um, and yeah. I think just even educating people on the difference between taste and aroma and how they work together. And then also understand the importance of colour in a food. And this actually goes, links quite well in terms of the fresh enterprise stuff, you know, talking about marketing and labelling. You know, the colour of the label, the colour of the product, the type of packaging. You know, they all have an imp impact in terms of how the consumer perceives that whole flavour experience. Mm. You know, and it, they all kind of tie in so kind of closely um, that it's kind of just trying to, understand the role of each individual aspect um in in terms of its contribution to flavor delivery this is why we invited you this is this is perfect i mean i know i know the color uh, i know the color thing because of obviously having done um olive oil tasting and do, having done the sommelier course i'm sure you both know that olive oil is tasted in the blue glass and the reason they do that um, is to uh, stop uh, people seeing whether it's a dark green or, or whether it's got more of a beta carotene kind of yellowy orange colour, because the colour does does not really sort of uh, dictate the taste. Um, so I, I knew that colour, you know, so the the colour uh, plays a part. But what what other elements? Um, you've already mentioned a few, but what other elements also affect taste then? You mean flavour? A fl flavour. <laughs> sorry. Oh my God, I'm not. I'm not even listening. <laughs> <laughs> School era. What other elements? Have... I hope you don't you edit that bit out. Um... <laughs> no, you, they won't. Trust me, you, you can't see me, but I'm blushing like crazy. Now. Um, well, I mean, just just before I answer that, just the other this this the study on colour that um you know I don't know if you've heard of, but this another is so, I think such a good example of 
we're, how, how much we're led by kind of colour expectations. Um, and it was a study they did on, on wine. Um, so I don't know if you've come across this, but they, they served um, a group of tasters a white wine. So for, it was a Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend. So quite characteristic in terms of it's like gooseberry, elderflower um, notes. And they dyed it red. So they looked like a red wine and they gave it to the assessors and asked them to smell the wine and describe it. And the majority of people smelling the wine describe it using things like blackcurrant, vanilla, licorice, pepper, all of those aromas you associate with the red wine, but from a Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend. Because the fact that it was red, they almost shut out that bit of their brain that was even able or looking for anything that was there. You know, I always, when I'm teaching people about kind of product development, I guess this, this relates quite closely to the kind of fresh enterprise stuff is if you're developing a strawberry yogurt, the feedback that you're getting from customers is that it's not very intense in terms of strawberry, but let's say you've used like a really expensive wild strawberry um, that maybe doesn't have that kind of intensity of flavor when it's put in the yogurt that you might expect. If you make the yogurt red, if you just make it more red, it's just helping the brain find the strawberry or just giving it like a helping hand and instantly the strawberry rating would go up in that situation because the brain finds it easier to locate it because the yogurt is red. If you've got like a lemon and lime drink and you make the packaging more green, people pick up more lime in it. You make it more yellow, people pick up more lemon in it. You know, I mean, it's amazing how the world of kind of food marketing works and kind of how easily we're swayed by it all. But I mean, it's just, you know, I think it's because we've been you know, we've been exposed, we've been brought, we've been brought up exposed to, to red fruits and vegetables being sweet, whereas green mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables are sour, or better, you know, unripe strawberries, more green, green peppers versus red peppers. So we have evolved to have a, a so to develop an association between red and sweetness. So it's, it's just, you know, that, that, that kind of association is there without even it having to be there because of the association. I know Bob knows Nicole Prasani from um, Chefs in School. She tells a very funny story about trying to sneak more vegetables into the school dinners at Gayhurst. She thought, like you suggest, Rachel, that, you know, people associate red things or colourful things with sweetness. So she started using beetroot in some of her savoury dishes. And apparently the children all sort of started crying because it looked like it was going to be sweet, but it tasted savoury. It, it completely... Well, that is the thing, I mean, yeah. You know, you need the expectation, Need you know, it needs to, it needs to be there. It needs to kind of... You need to have the congruency of experience, you know, like you need, you know, like when I talked about taste being a flavour enhancer, sugar is a great flavour enhancer of sweet tasting products. If you add loads of sugar to broccoli soup, it's not going to make it, it's just going to be out of place. It's not going to help with that overall understanding. I mean, it needs, you, you need to just help the brain with what it's expecting. It's almost like to, she's a pun, the more you're spoon feeding it relevant, congruent information, you're acting, you're activating more centers within the brain and you're getting more overall receptors firing and you're just going to end up with an overall bigger hit of kind of flavor experience. Um, I just, you know, I think probably I have to mention some of the really fascinating work that Charles Spence at Oxford University has done on sound. Um, right. So he did some really interesting research on the impact of the sound that a food makes when you eat it and the role that that plays in overall flavor. And he did some work on crisps. So he was looking at crisps and he had, um, he'd, they'd, they'd kind of developed this device whereby you had these headphones that as you ate a crisp would manipulate the sound that the biting of that crisp was making through the headphones. And what they were able to do is show that by making the, the crack, the crunch of those crisps, 
by, by kind of amplifying that sound, people would rate the crisps as being much fresher because you know, even the same crisp, but eaten while listening to different levels of amplitude of sound would be seen as significantly fresher just because of the, the crunch that was being made, which kind of makes sense. So you know that moment where you take a bite into an apple and it's yeah. disappointingly not, it just the crunch, you don't get that, that, that snap, that satisfying initial crunch. It kind of completely affects the overall experience, enjoyment you're going to have of that product because it may look like it's going to be really nice and crunchy and then actually just doesn't have that, that sound impact. And he's also gone beyond that to also show the impact of music. So actually the music that you listen to while eating a food or drinking a drink can impact um, how sweet you find it, how bitter you find it. Because we also, I've mentioned associations we have between colours and tastes, but there, we also have these associations between sounds and tastes as well, which is really interesting. So they've developed different sound bites of music and when you listen to them, you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely sweet and or that's definitely bitter. And then when you play those sounds while eating different foods or making different cocktails, if you're listening to the sweet soundtrack, you tend to add more sweet ingredients into your cocktail. You know, so there's, I guess there's just so much that happens without us realizing in the background. Yeah. Oh, and then one of the other study, brilliant study was yeah. on purchasing decisions. So I guess very similar to um, both of your fields of work in terms of the fresh enterprise and you know in terms of selling products in 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 store is they did a they did some research looking into the um purchasing of wine and they had two different wines it was a i think a french wine it was a german wine and you know at various different price points at each price point there was a french and a german and then on the days they played the french music more people bought french wine huh. and on the days they played the german music more people bought the german wine I think it was German, but anyway, so, and when they asked people as they left the shop why they bought that, that wine, they had no idea, you know, <laughs> so just listening to this music in the background was having an impact on purchase decisions as well. So, you know, the whole aspect of experiencing flavour, liking, I mean, that's a whole new level in terms of what drives what, which foods we like and which we don't, so important within school age kids as well. Um, yeah. You know, that's a whole new level as well that we're only just starting to explore and really understand in terms of nurture versus nature and how much mm -hmm. the two of those play a role in well, developing liking. You can tell I don't get out much. Sorry, that's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because we're doing tons of stuff at the moment about food environments. Okay, so all the data now coming out, particularly coming out of um, Guys and St. Thomas's Charity, is about how the food environment influences your eating habits i mean it's a bit of a no-brainer isn't it but we're we're moving away from that you know blame culture and looking at the individual when it comes to unhealthy weight and really looking at the environments where people have little opportunity to eat well so my the biggest example of this is you know the areas we're working with in lambeth and southwark you generally take a walk down the Woolworth Road from Elephant and you go, what are, what are my opportunities here to eat well? <laughs> Nil point. I mean, so, and it, it's really interesting if we can switch that narrative and sort of um, put a spotlight on, you know, good nutritious food and do something about the price point and where it is in the store, all of the stuff that we, you know, it's really fascinating stuff about consumer choice. Mm. It will make a real difference to children's health. And I... Um, Bob, you might have seen the work that Bite Back is doing, at, um, which is coming out of Jamie Oliver's organisation. Right. And they've done a really fascinating um, little film with their Bite Back ambassadors where they 
bombard them with subliminal messages around fried chicken. And they, they, it's really interesting seeing the, these young people, whether they're walking, they're seeing ads all over the place for fried chicken, they're have, hearing it on the radio, you know, advertising, they're seeing it on their phones, they're being marketed to. And, you know, within a couple of hours, they go, God, I could really fancy some fried chicken. And as campaigners, <laughs> As campaigners, we all sat around and watched it, and all of us was craving some sort of, you know, salty, greasy yumminess. So, it's uh, it is completely fascinating how it works and how how messed up it is. But um, anyway, we I mean, that's, that, that's an extension of Pavlov's dogs, though, isn't it? That's the well, idea it's that you have immune response. Yeah, absolutely, it's... absolutely. And going back to I think some of the things you were talking about earlier, Stephanie, is that you know, in in terms of encouraging. Um, good eating habits, um, you know, and I'm, I'm more that kind of, I was more looking at a younger age group when I was looking into this, this research, but it was looking at kind of fussy eaters. And, you know, the best thing you can do to encourage children, especially at a young age, to eat a wide <clears throat> range of different foods is if they see people around them yeah. eating them. Because they have this fear, we have this fear that, you know, it's from, it must come from the kind of hunter-gatherer days, that as soon as you get to the age where you can basically walk and therefore pick things up and eat them we needed some kind of evolutionary kind of trait to stop us from just eating anything because you know it's a kind of a survival trait and so it therefore makes us very nervous of, of new foods so neophobia which is very common in, in in kind of toddler age because you're like i don't know what this is i don't i don't see I haven't seen people eat this. I, I don't associate this as with something that isn't going to kill me. And so by them just seeing other people, especially kind of teachers, but also peers, eating it and nothing going wrong, yes, that that is much more likely to kind of get them to think, oh, okay, this is something now that I can eat. And school settings, you know, perfect situation for that because you've got herd, the herd community, you know, you've got like... Everyone can see everyone else eating it. Um, yeah. And if you've got good, healthy food that everyone's seeing everyone else eating, then Which that is, can amplify yeah. and amplify and amplify in the way that if all you do is leave school and see everyone eating fried chicken, then, mm. you know, of course, that's that's something that is going to then, you know, carry on spiralling in that way as well. Which is why we need to make school meals free. End of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know the whole the whole you know shared experience we've seen this with yeah. infants you know 95% take up of universal infant free school meals and all the children are learning that what a healthy plate looks like and all the children are having a shared experience the minute you start bringing in packed lunches and things turn up in those lunch boxes that shouldn't be then you've suddenly got to start policing lunch boxes. Then you've got to have difficult conversations with parents. Then you've got to address the fact that some parents can't afford to pay, but they're mm. not poor enough to be entitled to a free school meal. So you've got the whole stigma story. Just make them free. Yeah. You know, it's such a fantastic commitment to children's health. You know, uh, uh, and it, isn't it interesting that, you know, I know independent schools charge the parents, but... It's never an issue around food. Everybody eats together. It's a shared experience. Yeah. And it's, you know, what are we saying about our children if we're sort of letting them eat rubbish at lunchtime? It's, it's, it just shows a lack of investment and lack of love, I think. Well, definitely. I mean, I think you'd be surprised by the independent school sector, actually, Stephanie, because my wife, she, she teaches in the independent sector. And mm. she, she, over the years that we've been together, she has had some battles with, with, mm. uh, with parents about what they put in a lunchbox. 
Oh, right. Okay, that's interesting because we, I was in my brain, I had that um, independent schools you had to, I didn't realise it was an option to bring in. The school she worked in didn't even have a, 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 a any kind of canteen restaurant. It, it, you wow. had to bring in. Yeah, wow. it was. It, it, it's extraordinary. But on on that note, though, Stephanie, and and, and I'm going to and and Rachel, there's, there's a bit for you on this as well. I mean, do you come across flavors that children commonly dislike? Are there any of those? And and Rachel, if there are any from Stephanie, mm-hmm. do you is, do you think there's a scientific reason behind that, or are they just being awkward little buggers? Well, do I um, go first, Stephanie? Because I've already got the yeah. scientific explanation. So <laughs> yeah, there's no science in this, but we. But I, I just want to sort of reflect back when I answer this question. I want to reflect back to what uh, Rachel was saying about. Um, uh, peer pressure. It's not that's not mm. the right. Experience. What I'm trying to say, there's this fabulous moment where if one child picks something up and says that's disgusting, <laughs> um, mm. you can absolutely guarantee that nobody else is going to try it. Which so we do a lot of work with our young people about language, and we're yeah. encouraged to say things like that's not my favourite, and to just put a bit of a more of a positive spin on it. Well, it's okay, but it's not as nice as blah, rather than saying everything's disgusting, because that is really unhelpful. Um, Or even if they say something like, that's too spicy, then suddenly there's a reason for everyone else to try it and see if they also think it's too spicy or too sour. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting that the important role that language plays is... Descriptive analysis, but it's so hard to do, though. I mean, we're so poor as a a group of... You know, as a, as a human race, to dis- ability to describe flavours. It, it's really hard and we're not good at it. Also giving children the opportunity to describe things because often it's yeah. they're not given the time and space to actually really forensically examine what they're, yeah. you know, all the different senses. And we give them that opportunity and it's absolutely fascinating. And we have converted the naysayers, let me tell you. Some of those scary looking vegetables have been, you know, we encourage them to keep trying and tasting and describing. And what is it you don't like about it? Is it the texture? Is it the flavour? And you can really make progress that way if you give children the time and space to explore. But also even you know, understanding the difference between acidity and bitterness, which actually, unless you've been taught it, is, you know, it's, it's, it's not obvious. You know, and I do quite a lot of training with chefs and mixologists where I train their, test their palates for sensitivity to the five different tastes. And, you know, and, and to actually try those tastes in isolation and, you know, to first kind of be able to kind of identify them, but then also to look at, at sensitivity. And this actually goes back to kind of answering your question, Bob, is that when, when it comes to the perception of taste, we are very different in terms of our sensitivity to the different tastes. And I think this is most clearly demonstrating our sensitivity to bitterness. Um, and there was actually, a, it's a kind of genetic um, trait and that some of us, because of our genetic makeup, have a larger number of bitter taste receptors on our tongue and are therefore much more sensitive to bitterness than others. So you do sometimes find mm-hmm. that, that kids who are avoiding your broccolis, your bitter vegetables, your bitter green vegetables, your kale, things like that, could well just be super tasters. That's a term for when we're more sensitive to bitter tastes um, than others. And so for them, it's they're just finding the whole experience, the flavours overpowered by this kind of bitterness. Um, but obviously they haven't been screened for that because, you know, unlike my kids, not many five-year-olds <laughs> have been tested for their super taster status. Um, so... You know, so it's it they, they they don't you know people don't realise that actually maybe that's why they find it you know too why they're not enjoying it and actually we're born with a 
innate dislike of bitterness because we reject it. It's poison, poison, you know, poisonous foods are bitter tasting to stop us from ingesting them. So we have this very strong association from birth that bitterness is, is something that should be rejected. And so you need to train people to to kind of like bitterness. I mean, I, I, I am a super taster, not that I'm proud of that. I mean, it's actually quite annoying, but it's, um, you know, just because of my <laughs> genetics. But it meant that I, for a long time, didn't really like coffee, didn't like beer, but was desperate to like them because it was so cool force myself to drink enough of the two of them then now I love them both but you know it's it wasn't for me it was it took a while before I could actually get over that bitterness and actually like them for the products they are. Rachel is there some truth in the fact that the, the, the in the the idea that the more you try a food eventually you will like it is there any truth? Yeah that? so there, there's this magic number this kind of 15 whereby if you try something 15 times but it has to be the importance about it is you have to try it in a situation that's quite pleasant, like an encouraging, positive situation. You can't just force feed someone something 15 times and they're going to like it. And there's actually this um, this big concept called tiny tastes, which is all about actually by giving, um, especially youngsters, it works best, very small amounts of, of things in a nice, positive environment repeatedly that by the 15th time they will then like this food that they initially didn't like. And I remember doing it on my son, my poor son, who guinea, was guinea pig for a large number of different mini research projects. Um, you know, but he used to not eat many vegetables. And so I started doing this with him. And, you know, we started with courgettes. And I literally couldn't believe it. Like, he now eats, like, he would eat a whole courgette without even an issue because we did this little thing where every day he'd try a little bit and even if he just licked it he doesn't you know all he'd need to do is just make some effort to mm -hmm. to taste it then he'd get a sticker you know the power of the sticker so apart from the one you've just given us are there any tips for helping children to learn about flavors um in, in a in a fun way if you like because this would you know help me especially with uh with with the school food matters and uh, and that kind of work yeah, I don't think, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of the kind of obvious things, which I think it sounds like, Stephanie, you're doing a lot of with School Food Matters in terms of getting the children engaged in the cooking, the growing, you know, the preparation mm. of it. You know, I mean, there's something kind of, I can imagine there's nothing more satisfying than eating um, a carrot that you've grown or a tomato yeah. that you've kind of grown. And just, you know, and I know it's really easy to say, but just having that time, that positive attitude around food, you know, good quality ingredients, getting the kids involved. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of us don't have the time or the, the finances to be able to, you know, to, to, to necessarily do that. But I mean, it, you know, the, the more kind of interested and involved they are in it, the more, I guess, the more choice they have as well. I mean, something that we try and do is I know that, you know, it creates more work that the kids aren't eating the same things, but they get to choose what vegetables they want. And then they're kind of you know, then then they're having a bit more input. So, you know, when they yeah. come home from school, they get some choice over what they're going to have for supper over a number of different things. Because actually they just really aren't feeling chicken curry or whatever. If actually what they want is something different, then, you know, the way that I, I mean, yeah. in the evening, I just have what I fancy. If I've got fish in, I really don't fancy it. Then, you know, we're going to kind of sit there and eat it, you know, but kids don't necessarily get that, often get that same level of kind of choice but i know that logistically you know it's not it's well practically it's not so easy to do but it's just about involving them and obviously you know training them what what stephanie said really kind of trying to get them to talk about taste also i guess articulate what it is that they do like and don't like rather than just yuck you know actually 
is it the texture because if it is a texture then you can puree things you can crisp them you can fry them you know yeah. i mean there's lots of things you can do to brussels sprouts which is going to make them much more tasty than boiling them you know so it's just kind of about understanding what aspects there are but i appreciate it takes time and it takes a lot of kind of patience to be able to do that yeah, it does. I mean, I always remember when I was working at Borough Market, um, I, um, I was quite, I was pretty friendly with um, with a guy called um, Christophe Le Chevalier, uh, who's just got, it's just the most fantastic name. And he is French. And, and, he, and he, he now runs a wine shop, a, a bar and, and wine shop. But he was a teacher. He was a technology teacher. And, and he had, um, he had a, a, a couple of kids who, who were clearly sort of not eating properly. And, and one of them, he took under his wing and for a good few months, he was regularly sort of giving this kid cooking lessons and, and uh, one, to help him, uh, show him how to cook, but also just to feed the poor kid. And then, uh, and then eventually, um, he sort of, this, this kid stopped turning up because uh, Christoph would come in, come in earlier uh, to, to, uh, to meet him. And he stopped coming in because he's, the, the, the child's mother had found out and, and expressly forbade him from, from going in and, and doing it. And so he was back to kind of eating crisps. I mean, Stephanie, you know, it, it's, um, children, children love cooking. They do respond to it. But sometimes, do they, does, does that stop at the front door? Because the, the parents just aren't, aren't really interested. They don't, they don't get food. It's not their thing. Mm. Okay. In a lot of cases, yes, but it, I think it it's often not about being interested. It's not. It's, it's about not having access, not being able. And lots and lots of the parents of uh, this generation of children have, I get many of them being brought up on the microwave. Those those mm. skills have been lost through a generation. So it's often money it's often facilities the families mm. that we work with might not even have a an oven or a family table that we're talking about whatever's available to them and you know we i don't give up though because we have seen over and over again if you can ignite a passion for food and taste and flavor in young people they're really good ambassadors you know, because they will go home and say, we've tried this. And one of our, one of our program in um, Southwark, we did um, parent-children uh, cooking sessions after school. And it was so lovely seeing these young people showing their parents the skills they'd learned and said, you know, we can do this without a kitchen. We can do this from just cold and just show being really creative with, you know, low-cost, low-skill recipes. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, you know, it does enable families to do you know, more interesting food. But we've just got to, you know, you just don't miss any opportunity to ignite that passion in food, you, whenever you can. You can do it at any moment. You can do it by being outside, looking at vegetables growing in the ground. You can do it in the school kitchen, hopefully, um, through cooking lessons, or you can just talk about it, you know, in lessons. There are ways, and all that thing about descriptive writing, there are lots of opportunities to weave food in. You just, you just have to seize, seize the moment and um, sometimes you might convert the families too, which is a great thing. Well, look, I mean, Stephanie Slater from School Food Matters, Rachel Edwards-Stewart, food scientist and flavour expert. Um, thank you both very much. It's, it's been uh, Alice sent me a, a message just saying that uh, this could go on for ages. I'm really loving <laughs> it, but um, unfortunately <laughs> we can't. But bless you both. Thank you so much. And, uh, and hope to, to see you or meet you both um, again. Well, thank see you for you having soon. us. Thank you.
Nice to meet you, Rachel. Nice to meet you too. We'll be in touch, Stephanie. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and review. We'd really appreciate you taking the time to let us know what you think. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn, or go to bellazoo.com. Thank you very much for listening and hope you can join us next time. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.